0: Discover, engage, elevate. elevate, Artifact with Joshua
1: on Lola FM podcast.
2: The sound of Arabia.
1: We want to welcome Safiya Kuchukaraja everybody to our podcast today. This is Artifact. I'm your host, Joshua Van Alstyne. And today our special guest is Safiya Kuchukaraja. She was one of the first heads of Think in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And we really brought her into the studio today to learn more about what it means to be head of THINK. And what is a THINK as a head of THINK?
2: Well, first of all, let me start by saying thank you for hosting me today. And also I'd like to extend a thank you to your wonderful team. who has been extremely helpful and accommodating to having me here today and answering all my questions. So I really appreciate that. So, what does it mean to to be ahead of a think? It's a good question, and it's not the first time I get it because when people hear it, they're like, "So, what do you do?
1: Do you think all day?" <laughs> <laughs> because I think I think all day. Yes, but you think professionally. So, mm. tell us more about that.
2: I think most people have so much to offer. So, if we take one step back, what does ahead of a think do? What is it related to? It's essentially related to a think tank. And what is a think tank? A think tank is an institution, an organization where you produce a lot of research, you produce a lot of thoughts around, let's say, policies, around different topics that you want to have clarified. So for me specifically, during my you know previous experience, I used to do that around healthcare, sustainability, education, AI, and robotics. And then about humanity and society, people on planet in general, and try to see what can we do to solve some of the biggest problems that the people on the planet are going through right now. One of the first things that you have to do when you're in that position, well, this is my humble opinion. Everybody can have their own you know, strategy. Well, this is
1: your experience, Sophia.
2: Exactly. But my experience has been the first thing that you have to do is you have to realize and understand and accept that what you know is you actually don't know. And as soon as you realize that, then your whole lens shifts. And you actually sit there with some of the brightest minds on the planet. And you sit there and you actually listen to them. And you get almost rained on with knowledge And then you actually try to see how can we take all the amazing things that this person have spent their entire life on, researching, exploring, and understanding, and how can we incorporate that into practical solutions? So a lot of the work that it's about is, yes, it's a lot about research, but it's also about taking that and then making that come to life. And I'll give you a practical example. Please do. Just for people to understand. What does this mean? So, one thing that we dealt with was, for example, we deal with so many topics, but one topic that a lot of people can understand, especially, you know, we had COVID, et cetera, is infectious diseases. So, if you look at one thing that we were dealing with was, for example, tuberculosis. And so we thought to ourselves and said, well, this is a major problem. Not enough people are talking about this, not enough people know about this. So, what can we do from our side to bring a uh, solution, but also help raise awareness around this, right? So we did, you know, some research on it. We did a paper, we launched an index around the specific topic for people to basically know. We were one of the first ones who were actually able to track the monkeypox because then we started tracking all infectious diseases, right? But then we said, well, that's not enough because we need to put our money where our mouth is. So we decided to launch a research chair coincidentally in Denmark with one of the best immunologists that is out there who's basically figuring out how does your immune system react when it's inflammated with a virus like TB. So you basically take that hat and then you apply it to whatever topics that you have. This was healthcare infectious diseases but you can do the same with education. How can we create equity in education and make sure that everyone can have access to education and improve themselves in their lives and get jobs, for example.
1: Yeah. Amazing. So essentially, you professionally think and digest data and information and you boil them down to the essence of practical terms that people can later build strategies and use as a baseline, essentially, to tackle whatever calamity or whatever outcomes they're looking for.
2: That's right. That's it's, it's very well summarized. That's essentially what we're doing.
1: Well, I learned from the best. <laughs> Thank you. Coming up on Artifact, we'll be taking a behind-the-scenes look at the fascinating world of heads of think and diverse organizations like NGOs, government agencies, and private companies. So stay tuned. Artifact with Joshua
0: on the Ola FM podcast. The
1: Sound. So what is the role of think mm-hmm. in organizations, Safiya? Are you essentially the official brain of the organization? Like, does everybody like come to you and say, all right, head of think, is this what we should be doing? Or are we kind of exaggerating and oversimplifying <laughs> what that means? Uh, oh,
2: Wow, that's a lot of pressure to put on <laughs> one person or one entity. I think, you know. I'll use an African proverb that I absolutely love and I think most people should use this in the work that they do. And when you say, alone I go fast, but together we go further. Uh So I think it's extremely important to understand and know that everybody around us has something to contribute with. Doesn't really matter what they're doing, but everybody can give you a perspective because the problems that we're trying to solve are problems that everybody is dealing with. So with what we are doing, we try to get as many perspectives as possible from a lot of different kinds of people. We draft the strategies that needs to be used for the different topics that we are tackling. We don't always have all the answers, but what we know is we know how to find the answers.
1: Okay, so as the head of Think, Essentially, you don't know the answers, but you do know where you can get the answers from
2: that's right. I'll tell you something when whenever we start a new project, when we start off from think perspective, we used to always say to our leadership, "Listen, we're starting on this project, but just so you know, there's fifty fifty percent chance that this might fail. So you have to be aware of this before you're actually entering into the topic because you actually don't know because you're entering into new territory. But what you can do is you can research as much as you can. And then you basically enter into it with faith that this is going to succeed. Right. Mm. But when it doesn't
1: succeed, mm. what value do you walk away with from unsuccessful thinking ventures?
2: Failure is not failure in my eyes and in my opinion.
1: So what people are calling failure is actually not failure absolutely in your eyes. Absolutely not, okay.
2: absolutely not, because when you essentially fail, which I don't, I think it's the wrong term, if you see it from the right perspective, it's actually new knowledge, mm. right? So when you're doing, let's just say a, a new research project, you enter into a space and then you actually figure out, well, this actually didn't succeed, but this is great. I'm going to publicize this so others don't go through the same and they will be able to divert their strategy and they will be able to work differently. But when you're looking at it from, let's say, an entrepreneurial perspective, right? You're starting, you're making a new initiative, a new project, etc. It's very rare that a project succeeds from the first time. Just think about all the variables that you don't know when you're doing something for the first time, you really don't know. So there's so many, the odds are really high for something to not succeed, but it's fine because it's like when a baby is walking, it keeps falling, it doesn't stop, it just gets up and then it continues. It didn't fail, it just figured out, next time I'm gonna do this better. And by that time, the, the muscle memory and the brain learns, okay, next time I do this, I'm gonna do this better and then they succeed eventually. So the whole point with it is keep going and don't give up. Be stubborn, I would say.
1: Working off your analogy, babies' bodies are built to fall and their psychology is built to accept that falling, that so-called failure to walk. And I think it's a very interesting analogy because even though you are doing something very sophisticated, Mm. very high level, yet you still used a baby walking as your analogy, Mm. is intelligently using babies as an analogy for accepting, you know, not getting it right the first time.
2: It's absolutely okay. And I'll give you another example, Joshua, I'm a company in Denmark, one of the largest shipping companies we have there is Maersk. So there's a famous example of a fresh grad that was hired and... At the time when I heard this example, I was also, uh, you know, I was in university. So this fresh grad had been given some responsibility and he, in popular terms, it would be called failing, but I don't think he failed. He was given a project, the project, he didn't manage it well. So the project lost millions, right? So the initial reaction we had was, oh, he must have then gotten fired. And then our, our professor who was giving us the example said, No, he was actually one of the most valuable assets now that the company had. And we were like, oh, why is that? And then our professor explained to us is because he said, he now uncoded that by going this direction, this can happen. And he now has that knowledge and that experience to never do again, but also be able to share with others in order for them not to repeat the example.
1: Kind of like discovering the barriers. That's right. right. So discovering the barriers we might call failure because we weren't essentially looking to discover the barriers, but we just happened to accidentally find information that helps us realize where the barriers are. And that in itself is a success. And so what you're saying is, although you didn't find the proper gateway, even if you run to a wall, at least you know that there is a wall there so that you either have to dig under it or go through it or go over it or maybe keep on continuing until you actually find a more permeable entry or exit way.
2: Exactly, and just think about it. Most people have genuinely good intentions.
1: I think we forget that. That's right. Yeah, we do forget that. Exactly, but
2: most of us actually do have genuinely good intentions. So we just need to remember that more often.
1: But tell me, so as a head of think, sorry, we're mm-hmm. going to go just a little bit back to because <laughs> okay. we got a long answer. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. And which is, I think, which is great because we get to, we got to, we found our own barriers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so that's the life of a head of think. And next on Artifact, we're cracking the code of Sophia's fascinating role. Don't go anywhere. Artifact with Joshua
0: on the Lola FM
1: podcast,
0: the sound of Arabia. What
1: is it like essentially to be in this position? Not, you don't, it doesn't necessarily have to, you don't have to answer from the perspective of being the head of think at a think tank. But what is the usual for the head of think of any organization, whether it be an NGO or a government organization or a private company? What do those people do on their day to day?
2: To be very honest with you, I've never met another head of sync because because our, you know, where I used to work, our structure was so different, but I've met a lot of different kinds of people who are doing parts of what I'm essentially doing. What it means, what you actually do is you read a lot. (laughs) You consume enormous amount of data, enormous amount of information you apply a lot of critical thinking into what you do from a day-to-day basis. You meet with a lot of other people who are in other think tanks or in other academic institutions, other foundations, where you try to understand what they're doing and then you try to explain to them what is it that you are doing. And most of us, like I said, because most of us have good intentions and working towards the same goals... we usually try to see if we can find common ground on seeing how we can collaborate to go further together. And believe it or not, most people in our space are super interested in collaborating. If you see eye to eye, if you share the same values, it's also a very tough position to be in because a lot of people try to influence your... Thinking. Thinking, exactly. (laughs) No pun intended, yes. So it's a position where, you know, the natural standpoint that you have as human is you want to accommodate and you want to, you know, be inclusive and a lot of the times we are inclusive, but when it comes to facts, when it comes to data, when it comes to strategy, etc, you have to be a little bit tough in not having your agenda influenced by others while being respectful to their viewpoints. So being essentially independent is key. So it's part of what you do, but you do so many things because it's an incredible role. Uh, I wish at some point people would you know, uh, try to bring different people from different departments to such a position for them to explore what is this actually.
1: When we get back, we'll dive into a thought-provoking exploration of identity, experience, and the power of connecting the dots, right here on Artifact. Artifact
0: with Joshua on Orla FM podcast. The sound
1: of Arabia. You know, when I was looking at you as a potential guest, there were so many interesting layers to who you are personally and professionally. Here you are from Asia Minor, right? Grew up in Denmark, educated in Denmark. And now you're as the head of THINK for a global organization based in Saudi Arabia. And so for me, it was like, how many dots is this lady connecting constantly? Do you know what I'm saying? And do you think your personal upbringing... Genuinely, do you think your personal upbringing and your life situation made you a more ideal candidate to become a head of think or was it only based on, you know, your qualifications?
2: It's a tricky question and I'll answer you as genuinely as I can. I think when you're appointed to such a position, when you're appointed to such a role, who you are is part of your merits. It's part of your credentials which is, you know, your identity, because you have to be in a position where you mentally see things from multiple angles. So you can't just see things from one point of view, right? So you can't really, you're seeing a specific topic or you're gonna explore the topic of, I don't know, sustainability, right? If you have only explored things from one position, or from one angle, the results are going to be different versus if you try to be as inclusive as possible. So I think me having the background that I have has definitely contributed, but it's a tricky one to answer. It's, I think it's, it's contributed, but when you're in a position that I'm in, merit is extremely important because talking to some of the smartest people on earth, right? And they need to talk to someone who speaks their language and who understands them and who respects their background. Uh, So you have to have some sort of a merit to be able to carry out the agenda of your institution, essentially. But when pointed to the position, I think best candidates for such positions are people who have a very diverse background, just to make sure that they have a diverse lens.
1: I really, 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 really do respect that because I think there's so many lost opportunity when we search for candidates or people to fill positions based solely on qualifications. And I know that's opposite to what a lot of people are saying and a little bit opposite to what you said about merit. I think merit is extremely important. I mean, we can't just fill positions because we like those people or we think they're charismatic or we think they are smart. But I think when you match that intelligence, that IQ with the EQ, the Mm -hmm. emotional qualifications, do you know what I'm saying? The emotional intelligence, then you really find a very ideal person to work with because not only do you have the work experience to work with those type of people, you also have the life experience. If you look at it in practical terms, Sophia, which is something that you do all the time. (laughs) I know, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the master here, but. Thank you, you're so kind. When you think about it, and even though I'm a humble, you know, I'm a humble guy out of Texas. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> when I see when I see people that have extremely interesting personal, private life experience, right. and they're able to synergize that with their professional experience, mm. the outcome is people like you. People who can not only relate to others through their professionalism, mm. but also through their Personal experience. And so what good are those people who are super professional and they have all the qualifications, yet they're not able to relate to others?
2: And I think a key word that I would like to highlight here is the word respect. I think it's very important that we are respectful to the people that we are dealing with. Now, when I'm telling you that I'm speaking to a lot of very smart people, it's not because I am like them or I understand what they say, but I am I, I respect them, and I make it very clear in the beginning that I said, "Look, I'm actually not an expert in in your field, but I'd be grateful if you can help guide us or if you can help share information about what it is that you're doing." So, a diverse background is yes, about you, where you're from, etc. but it's also about the actual professions. And even if you don't know, it's okay. You just have to be clear and be respectful to the people that you are engaging with about the specific agenda.
1: All right, guys, stay tuned on Artifact to hear from Sophia about similar roles to the head of Think in ancient times. And whether it's a modern rebranding of an age-old function. Artifact with Joshua
0: on the FM
1: podcast. The Sound of Arabia. So take us back, Safia, to the history of Head of Think. Okay. So, you know, in, in ancient empires used to have like seers, or they have like people who can like fortune tellers and they have you know um so-called magicians and you know a very very high like alexander the great would have went to somebody and asked them for advice on policy creation on you know help someone to help him organize his thoughts of course those people were using legend and myth and superstition to guide those thoughts help organize those thoughts give language to those thoughts but is that kind of what a modern Head of Think does like I want to know is this really something that just came up this being head of Think or is this a rebranding of something that human beings have been doing for literally thousands of years mm.
2: look the specific position that you know I was holding was it was multiple things in one multiple teams under me where under normal circumstances those positions or those teams They would be separated so we would have let's say innovation and we had initiatives and projects programs you have research you have thought leadership a lot of that is under one pillar but if you look at them separately they have existed for as long as humanity have has existed right because essentially we are all people who create projects programs we're all entrepreneurs we all have thoughts We all have something that we can contribute with. No matter what people say, everyone has something that they can contribute with. Doesn't really matter. One thing in terms of, you know, organizing your thoughts and analyzing something. I know this is going to sound strange. It's not on my CV anywhere, but I did study law for a couple of semesters. And what I would say, I would recommend for anybody, um, whether it's high school, whether it's university, if you don't want to take a couple of semesters like I did, just take one course in law. What you learn there is to work with things, projects, processes, whatever it is in a very myth I cannot say the word, methodol, myth, methodological way.
1: <laughs> you said it better than I could <laughs> Thank I you,
2: Where basically you know if you have a case, a topic, whatever it is, you'll see it as one big mountain. say, how on earth am I going to climb this mountain because you're, you're seeing it. But what you learn in law school and while studying law is you're able to dissect things into smaller blocks. So it's digestible and chewable for everyone. So everyone will be able to contribute, but you yourself are suddenly able to dissect things and Process things yourself because if things are too big and too much, you, you, you won't be able to accomplish and finish. And it makes it even more difficult than to include people into the work that you're doing because we are all operating with, you know, teams, external stakeholders, internal stakeholders. So you also need to be able to m- include them into your work. But more importantly, they also need to understand what you're doing because. I always forget what the gentleman's name is, but he's the gentleman who's behind the balance scorecard. He's the one who said... The best strategy is not the best strategy. And the first time I heard it, I was like, what? What do you mean, Professor? How can the best strategy not be the best strategy? He said, the best strategy, and I was listening like intensely, you know, I was like, what is the best strategy? Because I'm in-
1: listening intensely now that you're reporting this story.
2: <laughs> I always forget his name. But I have to look him up again. The best strategy is the strategy that your people understand, because Because they are the ones that have to implement your strategy.
1: Very nice. Right? Very nice. My mind is blown. (laughs) Thank you. I can't think anymore. So, (laughs) thank God you're here. Oh, God.
2: So many puns, huh? (laughs) I can't help it.
1: I told you I'm from Texas. I can't help it. All right, guys, we're about to dive into the real deal behind the Head of Think title get ready to explore the fascinating depths of this role when we get back on Artifact. Artifact
0: with Joshua on Lola FM podcast. The sound
1: of Arabia. Sophia, so I had this very stereotypical silly, you know, idea Mm -hmm. about what it could mean to be head of things. Okay. And so I was like, you're essentially a crystal ball. Mm, People gather around you and like, all right, should we do A or B? and then you spit out like this <laughs> ai do you know what i'm saying ai wisdom and this is essentially what i thought yeah. i want to know mm-hmm. confirm for me this suspicion i have is there one item one tangible object mm-hmm. that does what you're doing like ai for instance are you the you know the human form of chat gpt
2: Oh, no way, not at all. Only me, but for, for people in general, and now when we're talking about AI and replacement of you know what we are doing as humans, because I think that's what you're moving towards, right? I it's like, it's, it's thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. But it's, in my opinion, it will be uh, impossible to replace humans and human thoughts, human interactions by tools, by AI, by robotics. If you think about it, AI is math, it's algorithms that's created by humans, Mm -hmm. right? So you can't really replace humans. But what I see, what we can do as human beings. Crystal ball moment coming, (laughs) Crystal ball moment loading, all right. I think we can use those tools for the benefit of humanity and society. I see AI as a tool that we can use um, for making our lives better. Is AI perfect? Far from. Will it ever be perfect? I really have no idea. Does it need to be regulated? Absolutely. It's just like when we just got cars, right? Do you remember? Everybody yes. was just driving around without a, a, a license. license and no you know, traffic lights or anything like that. But then we started regulating it. Why? Because we need to. The same thing is with AI and those tools that we are using.
1: I mean, even the founders of ChatGPT said that it should be regulated. So it's not like you're against the industry or not anything. Not at all. Yes. No,
2: no, no, not at all. It it needs to be, whatever we use, it needs to be used for the good of humanity. That's it.
1: Amazing. Safiya, when it comes to culture and heritage, mm-hmm. what would... Ahead of think do. So you know our listeners are interested in history. Our our program is called Artifact. That's right. And so they're interested in history. They're interested in culture. They're interested especially in Alluah. Mm-hmm. So what would somebody in your position think
2: mm-hmm.
1: about Allula
2: mm-hmm.
1: and its expanding or it becoming a hotspot for global tourism? Mm-hmm. And Preserving the cold... I know I'm asking a huge question. Yes, you
2: are. <laughs> but it's Sorry, okay. <laughs>
1: too many inputs.
2: It's okay. But I'm, I know I'm you, trying you to process it. it while you're talking. <laughs> <Tell me. laughs>
1: what are the implications of
2: a head of think
1: for the tourism industry?
2: Mm, good question. Essentially, the question boils down to, you know, should... The tourism industry have such a function? Should similar organizations have such functions? And I think so. First of all, let me start by saying I think what al Ula is doing is fantastic. I think the leadership of it is doing fantastic. These are not me being nice, but the results are speaking for themselves. It's visible. It's not one of those things where you can't really see what they're doing. The results are very visible. And now you guys have reached a point where you're getting international tourists coming. I've seen it. I've seen international people that I follow coming and posting from Al-Ula and they are not influencers that have been paid. It's genuinely tourists that have discovered this fantastic place. Now, when you're doing what we are doing within you know, research, think tank space, etc., you're essentially making policy recommendations. You are creating global awareness and you can help shape the agenda when it comes to this specific topic. And I think, in my humble opinion, that team behind Al-Ula have proven themselves that they are able and capable to help contribute to the global agenda domain, a function, a unit, couple of people they can give back to the global community because they have something to say and what they are saying is of very high caliber I've seen it I've experienced it and I genuinely do think that the world needs to hear more from successful Saudi entities from successful Saudi leaders because there are so many of them But the world just doesn't know yet. And it's again about bringing the lens from a different perspective. Because imagine if you're sitting somewhere in Europe, you're sitting somewhere in North America and you're designing your policies, you're designing your strategy, but you're only able to do it based on what you already know. But what if you give back with what you know, what you have learned, what you have explored, Imagine the wealth that you can create in other places, other than Saudi Arabia.
1: Just to multiply what you're saying, not to pat myself on the back. <laughs> you deserve it. Thank you so much. But I always imagine it as Al Ula is home to 200,000 years of human existence, mm-hmm. and so when you look at Al Ula in those terms, 200,000 years—not 2,000 years—I mean a lot of a lot of. Places around the globe boast about having 2,000 years, 3,000 years of heritage and culture, and that's all very nice. But when I'm talking about 200,000 years of human inhabitation, today, the community in Alola and the Royal Commission for Alola mm. are giving a voice to people who existed 200,000 right. years that's ago. That's right. And really, I'm so impressed and how the, their memories of their existence, their lives are being you know, rehabilitated, and they're being given a voice again. And when they lived and perished, they never imagined that somebody would perhaps think about them in these terms. We're about to get real about heritage, storytelling, and why it's not just for dusty museums. Stay tuned, Artifact fam, because when we get back, things are about to get interesting. Artifact with Joshua
0: on the FM podcast, The Sound of Arabia.
1: And so, when you're thinking, uh, you're professional thinking, of course, <laughs> Sophia. When you're thinking about culture and heritage, mm. what are some of the most important aspects? Like, some people like culture for the sake of culture, it makes them feel sophisticated. But through your lens, mm-hmm. which is a word that you used a few <laughs> times in this podcast. What are the implications? Why is cultural preservation, storytelling, heritage, protection, why is all that so important?
2: I mean, I think it's one of the most important things in the world, to be very honest with you, because past will predict the future, right? So a lot of the times we really don't have to reinvent the wheel. And... If we did not take care of our heritage and our culture, we would all be the same. And what a boring world that would be.
1: So essentially you're saying heritage and cultural preservation and storytelling is
2: keeping life interesting and meaningful. Absolutely. It helps bring so much authenticity. I mean, the world we're living in right now, right? We need authenticity and we need more of it and we need preservation. And for me, I'm just so ecstatic that there's so much focus on this right now because I know that, you know, we as humanity, we've already lost so much of our heritage and our culture, but I'm so happy that there's so much focus on it right now to be able to preserve what we have for future generations. And look at what we're discovering right now in Saudi Arabia. Goodness, it's fantastic. And the world should see and hear what it is that we have. And I am telling you, um, Saudi Arabia, once the world really discovers, it's going to be overrun by tourists uh, because it's amazing. And then you're going to have the opposite problem because then you're going to be in a position where you're like, uh, you know how how I think it's Venice that has trying to, Cap. Yes, that's right. I think you're going to reach a point where you have to start capping because you're going to get too much interest. You're on the right track, 100%. The thing,
1: Sophia, is we are so uh, grateful to have you in the studio and thank you so much for your time and for thinking <laughs> with us. We feel honored to have been thinking and talking with the former head of THINK at FII, the Future Investment Initiative with you is your host, Joshua Van Alstein, and my guest today was Safiya Kucukarajan.
2: Thank you so much, Joshua. Thank you to the team. Thank you to the listeners. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thanks for listening
0: to Artifact. Thanks. Subscribe for more great content right
1: here on El FM Podcast. The sound of